This is the Environmental Integrity Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Pelton. I'm here with Eric Schaefer, Executive Director of the Environmental Integrity Project and former Director of Civil Enforcement at EPA. Eric, President Trump ran on a campaign of law and order. How has his law and order philosophy been playing out in terms of environmental enforcement and corporations that break the law? Well, you remember Trump also promised in a campaign to crush EPA to little tidbits, and he attacked the environmental laws whenever he could, claiming they were putting all kinds of businesses out of business, claiming falsely, as you know, most of his claims turn out to be false, and yeah. this is no, uh, no exception. So once he took power, the emphasis was on rolling back requirements and public health standards and softening enforcement, backing off enforcement. And we're starting to see that in the results from the enforcement program. We looked at some data over about two decades. The EPA puts out annual enforcement reports. And what did we find? How did they do, for example, in fiscal year 2018, compared to previous years? As you said, EPA rolls out its enforcement results every year, and they look at a variety of measures. They look at how much pollution that enforcement actions took out of the air or water. They look at penalties paid. They look at the amount that polluters are going to have to pay to make it right, to get back in compliance. All those measures were down, 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 down to rock bottom. Uh, In some cases, the lowest level ever and in other cases, the lowest levels we've seen in 15, 20 years. For example, for inspections, uh, I think we found that last year, EPA completed about 10,000 inspections. That was the lowest level since 2001. In terms of pollution violations, there were only 120 civil cases. Those are actions that EPA either sent to Justice Department for prosecution or closed. So if I remember right, there were about 120 cases sent over to the Justice Department for civil prosecution. That may be the lowest level on record. And they also weren't closing many cases. By that, I mean finishing them, getting the court to enter a consent decree requiring polluters to clean up and pay their penalties. So any way you measure it, environmental enforcement is in the basement right now. Including criminal environmental enforcement. I think we found that EPA charged 105 polluters with environmental crimes. That's right. In fiscal 2018, the fewest in at least 18 years. So, you know, it's important to remember that most states, they don't have the authority to criminally prosecute people who intentionally violate environmental laws, even when those violations are serious and cause public health harm or really damage a waterway. They just don't have the authority to hold them criminally responsible when people have done really bad things to the environment intentionally. So it's only EPA. EPA is it. They're the only game in town. They're the only sheriff. And one thing the Republicans often assert is, hey, this is best handled by the states. Yes, maybe they're doing a little less at the EPA level, but that's good because the locals know how to handle these things better. Sounds like you don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't. There are some excellent state programs and really good people working in some of those programs in state agencies. But in too many situations, when it comes to enforcing environmental law, states don't have the legal authority, they don't have the technical capacity, and too often they don't have the political will. And that last part is really important. A state is very reluctant to bring an enforcement action against maybe the state's largest employer. That's a hard thing to do. It's not as hard for EPA to take that case. It may be very hard 
for a state where the governor is sensitive or taking, frankly, political contributions from big companies for the state agency to go after them. And that's just reality. Also, we've found that state budgets for environmental agencies have gone down. That's the right. states are taking cuts to their environmental agency, so they have fewer people working on enforcement. Pennsylvania is one great example, just dramatic cuts in the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. We also saw at the EPA level, we've seen declining workforce and declining budgets for enforcement. You know, what kind of impact does that have? Well, so there are some new technologies that make it sometimes easier to detect violations. For example, infrared cameras that can capture gases leaking from a storage tank. So those things can make enforcement more efficient, but the work takes people. There's no substitute for having trained and talented investigators out there looking. I think it was Elon Musk that recently said humans are undervalued when he realized that you know he'd put so many robotics into his Tesla plant that things weren't working. You've got to have boots on the ground, you have to have people out looking, and you need them well-trained, and you need them with the skill and the ability to stick with a case until it's done. And in terms of people, I know that, for example, in fiscal year 2017, EPA had 1,879 employees, full-time equivalent positions in both criminal and civil enforcement. For the president's budget for this year, for 2019, it's 1,548, so a significant drop. And both of those numbers are way down from, for example, in 2011, 2,228 people working in criminal and civil enforcement, a lot less people doing the job. We've seen about a 15% reduction in the uh, manpower for enforcement just over the last six or seven years. Keep in mind that's at the same time that we have brand new industries springing into life. We have oil and gas production like we've never seen before in the U.S. We've got thousands of wells put in every month all over the country. We have big new plants getting permitted. Who's out there making sure that they're honoring their contract with the community to comply with those limits on the amount of pollution they put in air and water? You cannot do it without people. Some people might say, hey, who cares? Fewer federal bureaucrats, that's good. We looked into some cases specifically around the country, 10 cases of significant documented environmental violations that are not being cracked down on by EPA or the states in many cases. Talk about, we found an example in Laplace, Louisiana. This is west of New Orleans. There's a chemical plant, the Denka Performance Elastomer Plant, that is releasing cancer-causing chemicals into the air. This is a poor minority community. Nothing's being That's done. That's right. It's almost entirely African-American, and it turns out they've been exposed to this carcinogen for many years, many times above the limit that EPA considers acceptable. And by acceptable, that means you get the cancer risk down to, you know, more or less minimal levels. The risk is much higher in these communities. The violations at the Denka plant were uncovered several years ago, in 2016 actually, by one of EPA's best teams of investigators. And those violations were all over the plant. And they found very, very high levels of this particular toxin in the air around the facility. And of course, now all of that is getting into the community and has been for years. That company needs to be busted. It needs to pay a big penalty for what it did. It's now doing some voluntary action to clean up. Well, I should hope so. I mean, they got caught red-handed. 
but that's not enough. We have to have honest self-policing at these plants. They have to put time and money into making sure they're meeting their limits. Lots of plants do that. Many plants do that. People work hard to do that. And then you have a facility like this one come along where they either didn't care or they were just mismanaged. And you have a, an environmental disaster, and where's the enforcement action? You talk about the chemical chloroprene, and that has been detected by air monitors at an African-American. There's a church, there's a school nearby at uh, concentrations, as you mentioned, way over uh, what's safe in EPA's estimation. I looked at the latest monitoring data today, as it happens, around that plant, and the numbers are up wow. again in several locations. So, you know, I just keep, imagine this were happening in one of these wealthy suburbs in Washington. Imagine the outrage, and there'd be lawyers pouring out of the woodwork. It'd never be built in the first place. It'd never be built in the first place. And if it was, if there was any odors, they'd have a legion of lawyers down their necks. All hell would break loose. And because it's in this poor Louisiana community, they apparently think they can get away with it. And that's where EPA is supposed to step in. You know, another interesting example we found was up in Minnesota, in Egan, Minnesota. Gopher Resource is a lead smelting business. And there's a violation notice a couple years ago emitting illegal levels of lead air yeah. pollution into the community. People live downwind from this facility, and they're breathing it in, and EPA's doing nothing about it. Can't find anything that EPA's done on it. And just to be really clear, EPA's case involving that plant is based on the government's allegation that that plant's emissions were causing the health-based air standards in the neighborhoods around the plant to be violated. So that plant pretty much by itself is making the air unhealthy. And we're still waiting for action from EPA on that. They've said lead is their number one priority. We've heard those statements from Andy Wheeler. But, you know, you have to walk the walk. It's not enough to just talk about a problem. You've got to go out and do something about it. This is hurting even Trump voters. You know, some of these plants that we found with gross air pollution violations were in states and in communities that voted heavily for Donald Trump. For example, in northern Indiana, in Burns Harbor, Indiana, blue collar, this is a white neighborhood up east of Gary, Indiana, uh, Burns Harbor, near Lake Michigan. The Magnetics International Inc. plant, it's a hydrochloric acid regeneration plant. Some major air pollution violations. People downwind are breathing in hydrochloric acid, which can be corrosive to the eyes and skin and to the lungs. I don't know if these Trump voters know that they're voting for a guy who doesn't want to stop that air pollution. Yeah, so, you know, air pollution doesn't make political distinctions. You know, it will find you whether you voted for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. It doesn't care. And as you point out, and it shouldn't be surprising, a lot of these downwind areas are in factory towns. And people don't want to see the factory close, but they certainly want to breathe clean air, and they don't want their groundwater contaminated, and they'll raise hell about it when they understand what's going on. So they do need protection. These are people in the heartland who've, in many cases for generations, been raised in communities where you make things, you build things, you're in manufacturing. They're, they're proud of it, and they should be. Why should they be exposed to toxic gas from these plants? There's no reason for that. It's really unfair. Now, you were invited to testify back on February 26th before the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee Oversight Committee. They did a, an investigation of what they called taking the environmental cop off the beat. And you testified alongside Susan Bodine, the director of enforcement for the Trump administration. She said that it's a myth 
that there's a decline in enforcement. Let me play part of her statements. I'll play a tape here, and I want to get your response to this. I'm pushing back on this, this myth, these myths about our enforcement program. A strong program, enforcement program does not mean that we have to collect a particular dollar amount of penalties or take a particular number of formal actions. What do you think? Is it a myth? No, it's not a myth. First of all, the enforcement program itself reports these numbers. They report penalties. They report cleanups. They report the amount spent on cleanup and also the amount of pollution removed out of the air. By any one of those measures, enforcement activity has dropped. The results are meager. So those are Susan Bodine's numbers. I do think penalties matter. You know, we're talking now about enforcement's results that are measured lots of different ways with all of those measures being down. Penalties do matter. And I think this is a place where you can look to the common sense of the public. They see a polluter who's put a lot of nasty and illegal stuff into their air or water. You can bet they want them to pay a penalty. That's a part of the expectation. It's also part of how you keep companies in compliance. It's a deterrent. It's a deterrent. If you never have to pay a penalty, or let's say if the penalties are trivial and the message from government is, oh, you know, penalties don't matter, well, you're just going to sit on your hands and wait until the government comes knocking at the door. And then maybe you'll start to comply. And that's not how it's supposed to work. If every time I was speeding, the cop pulled me over and just gave me a brochure and a good talking to, I'd probably keep speeding. Absolutely. That is a great example. If you are caught speeding, you not only may pay a penalty, you often do, your insurance rates will go up. And that is a deterrent. Yeah. And the money matters because money talks in America. Money talks in America, and especially to profit-making corporations. We are not here talking about the little sisters of mercy. We are talking about big, in many cases, multinational corporations. And they live and die by the bottom line. And Susan Bodine, Trump administration's enforcement chief, talked a lot about, as a lot of Republicans do, you know, the state should be handling this. Let's, let's hand this off to the states. What they talk about is cooperative federalism, basically saying, hey, we're all going to cooperate here, but mostly we're going to let the states take the lead. Let let me play a tape about her talking about state role. Cooperative federalism means that we cooperate with states and we discuss how our combined resources can best address noncompliance. How about that? I mean, shouldn't the EPA just be letting the states take care of their local business? Yeah, no. The short answer is it's not nearly that simple. And I think Susan Bodine probably knows that in her heart of hearts. Everybody needs to appreciate that states do a lot of environmental work that's very important. We are in a federal system where EPA and state agencies share authority. A state can agree and get authorized to implement a federal program like issue Clean Water Act permits. But EPA always, always retains the authority to enforce those laws, even if the state is issuing the permits. And if you look at the legislative history behind these statutes, They make clear Congress was worried that there would be heavy, heavy political pressure on state agencies. There would be times when the state either didn't have the authority or they didn't have the capacity or they didn't have the political will to enforce the law. That's why EPA is there. Frankly, if EPA is willing to enforce, in the end, I think it makes states stronger. If you're a state agency, you're negotiating with a polluter and you're looking across the table and saying, you know, EPA can come in and really whack you. That puts you in a strong bargaining position. Sure, absolutely. A lot of Republicans in Congress and in the Trump administration make the case that EPA is a job killer. 
that the more EPA, the less economic growth, and that it's kind of restraining our economy. So therefore, if there's less of it, that's great. Here is Republican Congressman Jeff Duncan talking about the impact on capital. When the EPA is inefficient, they are holding up capital. How about that? I mean, are these companies being restrained by too much EPA? First of all, that's not really consistent with any of the research we've seen. That's kind of a bumper sticker slogan that's thrown around by politicians, as in this case. There's not really much behind it. EPA is not an agency that is set up solely to protect the pocketbook of corporations or to make sure that capital can be spent as well or as efficiently as possible. Their job is to protect public health and the environment. And if that means getting in the way of somebody's business plan because their business plan ended up seriously violating the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act, too bad. That's just too bad. And to be honest with you, that's how capitalism works. We have a thriving free market. We also have rules the market has to live by. I think the market itself, to function well, needs those bright lines that let investors and businesses know when are you threatening public health and needs a predictable enforcement response when you step over the line. You step over the line, you're going to pay. You know, we came out with a report, uh, I guess this was about two years ago, about debunking the job killer myth. And we looked at decades of economics literature. And I think we found that only two-tenths of one percent of all layoffs are caused by regulations of all kinds, including environmental regulations. It's just, it's just not a real issue. To, it, frankly, many of the violations that you see at these plants are because there aren't enough people being employed to do things that actually not only protect the environment, but usually will save the industry money. Yeah. So this idea that there's some tension between jobs and the environment, if Susan Budine wants to, if the assistant administrator wants to talk about myths, that'd be the first one I would put on the list. It's a big myth, and lots of talk about how coal-fired power plants are closing, which is true. We're seeing a lot of coal-fired power plants closing, but they're closing because of capitalism. Natural gas, in particular, is much, much cheaper as an energy source, and so increasingly is solar and wind power. So capitalism is killing the coal those, plants. Those are the primary factors. I think a secondary factor is that at a lot of these plants, 50, 60, 70 years old, they finally faced limits on the amount of pollution they could put in the air and water that under our statutes were supposed to have been in place 20, 30 years ago. And I, I don't exaggerate when I say that. Their attorneys and their lobbyists were successful in stalling those public health standards. Like to put scrubbers on coal-fired right, power plants, Right, to put a scrubber. You've got 90,000 tons of sulfur dioxide, just a really a killer amount, literally, of sulfur dioxide coming out of a coal plant. For decades, because the industry's lobbyists have been able to sort of juke around the requirement to limit those emissions, well, primarily by leaning on EPA or slowing EPA down, litigating everything, finally the bill comes due. They don't get to postpone it any longer, and suddenly those plants start to close. That's as it should be. Speaking of coal, here is a Representative David McKinley of West Virginia talking about the coal industry and its impact on enforcement numbers. We've had some 300 coal-fired generating plants shut down over the last 10 years. Therefore, you're going to have fewer inspections. You're going to have fewer fines as a result of that. What do you think about that? So, first of all, there aren't that many coal plants to begin with, maybe 400 sites. So, shutting down some of those coal plants, that's not going to have a dramatic impact on inspections. And while those coal plants have been winding down, 
we've seen an explosion in the construction of oil, gas, petrochemical, fertilizer, LNG projects. Who's minding the store with those? They are getting permits, in some cases very quickly, that set limits. We don't know in many cases whether they're meeting those limits because we don't have enough people in the field to make sure they are. And again, here we're talking about complying with the law, meeting limits that they've already agreed to meet by taking those permits. So I don't think the sort of slow wind down of the coal industry it provides any justification for seeing the number of inspectors and investigators decline and also the number of inspections drop more than 50% over the last several years. We've seen a gigantic increase in the petrochemical industry, That's right. the plastics industry, a lot of new plants being built along the Texas Gulf Coast, but also across Pennsylvania and Ohio. Right. A lot of plant construction, a lot of wells being drilled. Certainly all those locations, there's work to do. Pennsylvania is the second largest gas producer in the United States today, behind Texas and closing in on Texas. Ten years ago, they were an asterisk. If you looked at the big gas-producing states, Pennsylvania didn't even rate. Now they're the second largest. That's all happened in about 10 years. And at a period of time when the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection has been cutting its That's staff. That's right. So we have fewer inspectors there, so more work needed by EPA and the states. And so it doesn't make sense to somehow claim that there's a disappearing of American industry. So what do you think is the upshot to this? I mean, we've seen a drop in enforcement under the Trump administration. We've seen Congress pushing back against draconian cuts, but also demoralized staff at EPA, some veterans leaving, frankly, because they're being held back from doing their jobs effectively. Looking to the future, how is this going to play out, do you think? So let's get to some good news. And there is some good news for a change. For one thing, we have a new House majority. The very first hearing they held in the Oversight Subcommittee was on environmental enforcement. Their members were at the hearing, well-informed, leaning in, as they say, asking the right questions, and the committee's pledged follow-up. As an ex-EPA manager and staff, I can't tell you how important that is. I can't stress that enough to have the oversight people in Congress ask for more enforcement. We haven't seen that in 30 years. So having that political pressure, and I don't mean uh, getting involved in specific cases and trying to, you know, push a particular outcome because that's something the, that the enforcement staff at EPA need to manage, but having Congress ask the right questions and demand more enforcement, not less. Basically look at the facts, realize how many serious violations are out there that don't get attention, and then hold the agency accountable. That will make a big difference. Yeah, a real sea change in the attitude of Congress. EPA, not the bad guy, but in this case, a necessary part of protecting public health. That's right. And I, I think, you know, you'll hear, well, the air is getting better nationally, or we have better compliance over here or over there. People care about the environment in the places where they live and work. That's what enforcement is all about. If you're getting hit in the chest with gas from a petrochemical plant, you don't want to lecture about national compliance rates. You want something to get to that petrochemical plant and make them stop. And that's what we need enforcement to do. All right. Well, thanks very much. This has been Eric Schaefer and Tom Pelt for the Environmental Integrity Project. Have a great afternoon.